Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to Impact the World. And my wonderful guest today is none other than Tracy Stanley. Tracy is someone that I'm new to, but her work and her presence are just beautiful and very clear and very pure. And her book that she has just released is called Radiant Rest. And I think that that title and that ethos is something that is often so overlooked in our society, in our training. And even for those of us in the personal growth and spirituality fields, It's not always something that we start with. It's usually something that can come to us, a deep practice of self-nourishment, self-care. So it was really wonderful to meet Tracy and to learn how she's been an advocate for this work for the last 20 plus years and where she's at with her work today. We go all over the place. We talk about Yoga Nidra. We talk about her work in the movie industry and how her self-care and spirituality practices enhanced and interlocked with that. And the fact that she is now a full-time teacher, advocate of this work and author. So you can check all of Tracy's work out at radiantrest.com. And as ever, we will put links in the show notes. And if you are a fan of this show and you enjoy what we do, we are a self-funded show. So you can support us best by leaving a rating, a review, or subscribing over on Apple Podcasts. And for now, I invite you to enjoy this experience with Tracy Stanley. So Tracy, thank you so much for being here at Impact the World. I'm delighted to have you on the show and to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee. Um, I'm honored to be here and to be in your presence. So thank you for having me. Well, what I love about the timing of this uh, this show that we're taping today is I had not heard of your work prior to about six weeks ago. Uh, maybe it was two months. And Wendy, who produces the show with me, said to me, oh, there's someone you have to look at. She's really special. And as soon as I looked at you, I had the same feeling. And it was like, yes, we absolutely would love to have her on the show. But what's funny is, of course, there's no coincidences, your book that has just been released is called Radiant Rest. And you also have a podcast with the same name. And of course, the timing is in the last 10 days, I have been seriously upping my self-care because Mm -hmm. I got to a point where I was like, "Uh oh, I'm getting a little overstressed, a little out of balance, and I need to increase what I'm doing. And of course, that has been a message that has been coming through me in my intuitive work over the recent months. So I love that we're here with not only a practitioner of rest and self-care, but also you are really standing for that in the world right now. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that you're taking care of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get started, I'm just curious to ask you an everyday life question. How many, let's say, how much time per day do you find in general, at the moment, you are able to devote to self-care, resetting, and nourishing yourself? Mm, I love that question. And, you know, for me, nourishment and rest is what I am devoted to. So I really don't look at it as being separate from my day-to-day life. I look at it as being more of a weaving And that I create a foundation of nourishment in the way that I schedule my appointments and who I decide to engage with and collaborate with in the types of projects that I decide to do, that it all has at its root. And the question, the root question is, is this nourishing? Is this something that is healthy? Is this something that is a thing or a practice or a wisdom tradition that I am devoted to? And if it's not, the answer is no, right? It's just because I can do something well 
or I know a lot about something, it doesn't mean that it's my dharma to do it or to talk about it. And so I really feel like staying in my lane of my dharma allows me to be nourished and regenerated um, by everything that I do. That's so beautiful. And I think for many of us who weren't necessarily, I'll speak for myself, but I know I'm sure a lot of people will relate to this. Our society, the way we were raised, our cultural conditioning did not usually include that kind of alignment with rest or with our choices. And I think for most of us, it has been a journey to kind of come to a place of honoring and serving the self in a bigger way and an ongoing journey for most of us, I think. But I I love hearing you standing so deeply in it and for it. So thank you for the rest, on behalf of the rest of us. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it like you said, it was a journey. It wasn't like I woke up uh, born with this understanding that I need to create the foundation of, of nourishing and nourishment for myself. I really had to learn hard lessons to be able to get to the point where I'm able to stand really firm in my boundaries of what I will and won't do um, in order to protect that sacred space for myself. So who were you before this? So before whatever was the beginning of the journey, whether it was a big moment or a series of steps over years, who were you before the way that you live your life now? And what what did that look like? Mm. Well, I would say that as a child and as a young, uh, as a teenager and young adult, I was extremely introverted, painfully so, and I am still an introvert. But the gift of being introverted and having parents that were very um, basically disciplinarians, extremely strict, is that I learned to observe and I learned the craft of restful listening, even though I didn't have those words. Um, And that was something that really built my intuition. And so I had intuition at a very early age, didn't learn to listen to it until later. Right. Um, And then once I got to be a little bit older, really um, started to become a little bit more of a rebel because I felt like I was invisible. Um, I felt like my voice wasn't being heard. Um, I felt like I didn't belong and I stood out in certain ways. And so, you know, certainly got into punk rock music and coloring my hair all different colors and shaving my head and having a mohawk and all the things, right? <laughs> Love it. And, <laughs> and so from there, um, it really started to kind of, my life started to really change once I started practicing yoga. And at the same time that I discovered yoga, I was very lucky that that's the very same time that I started interning at an office in uh, Hollywood as a as an intern in a film production office that would eventually become my career. So I was really lucky to be able to kind of have these teachings of yoga blossoming within me at the very same time that my career, which eventually became the career of a film producer, was also blossoming. And I think had I not had those two things happening at once, I don't know that I would be here uh, right now Mm. in the same way that I'm showing up in the world. Mm. Because the ability to care for yourself through the practices was able to offset some of the stress or the, you know, I'm sure I know a little about the film business, but the, the bit I do know is I know it can be a very stressful, high turnaround and not always highly empathic environment. 100%. So, you know, what I would say is one of the first projects that I brought into my company that was something of note um, was a project with an A-list movie star. And it was a very big project for our company that kind of led to a first look deal with a big studio. And so all of a sudden we went from being this tiny kind of independent uh, film company that was making movies for a couple of million dollars to making, you know, movies that were $50 million. And I found myself at the head of that company. There comes with that, especially in Hollywood, a lot of ego, a lot of reveling in the power. There's a lot of, you know, partying, a lot of things that 
are really looking towards the external for validation. And I believe that because I had this practice of yoga, which was really asking me to look inside for my worth and look inside for the understanding of who I really and truly was as a person and to really remember who that person is as opposed to try to find it or construct it, it really kept me from falling into a lot of the perils that I think are wrought in the Hollywood business. And, you know, I've been out of that business for quite some time, so maybe it's different, but I doubt it. No, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it allowed me to stay balanced. You know, not only did I have practices that allowed me to stay rested and clear and to actually tune more into my empathy and more into my intuition so that I would kind of have this understanding of what was going on without it being spoken, that that helped me to be more productive. It helped me to be a more intuitive, um, creative producer, um, to be able to say, oh no, I don't think I want to work with this person just because of the vibration. It's not like I need to tell anybody else on my team that, but it's basically, you know, it really helped me to guide um, a more productive and easeful way of being in that business. Beautiful. And what was the door opener for you? Because I, I know from reading about your story online, 1995 is the year on your website that it says you found Tantra and yoga and the study of meditation. What what initiated that, that door opening and finding this work? Yeah. So in 1994, I found myself living in uh, Tomboskluf, which is a little town um, in Cape Town, a little neighborhood in Cape Town. And I was there, knew nothing about yoga. Um, I had dabbled a little bit when I was like 12 or 13 years old in astral projection because I had found a book on it. And then I got scared in the middle of doing it and kind of put the book down and never looked at it again. Um, But I had a moment of spontaneous meditation. Mm. I was sitting on a balcony watching the sunrise. Table Mountain was in the distance. And it was, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. It was completely silent. It was beautiful. And it was just a moment of clear presence and clear awareness. That was not something I was trying to do. But when it happened, it was so profound that I knew something significant had shifted within me. And I kept asking people that I knew and telling them what had happened. And nobody knew, like, you know, people were looking at me like I had 12 heads. Like, I have no idea what you're talking, were you taking drugs? What was happening? It's like, I hadn't taken any drugs, didn't do drugs. So it wasn't anything outside of me. I knew that whatever happened was something that was in me. It was always there. And it was something that I really wanted to get back to. And eventually I found a friend who was a little bit older who said, oh, I know exactly what happened to you. And he took me to the spiritual bookstore in Johannesburg and he piled up about six or seven books and said, read these. And I've always been an avid reader and I had a lot of free time on my hands when I was in South Africa. So I read those books and I I led myself through chakra meditations, tantric meditations, you know, that were very uh, mind-blowing, just having reading the instructions and doing the practice and having an experience, Um, reading Khalil Gibran, reading uh, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And literally within a matter of two or three weeks of reading these books, it shifted my my perspective and my understanding of reality. That's what happened from an intellectual point of view, you know, reading things like the Celestine prophecies and these ideas that had I had never thought of before. And when it started to happen to you, what did you notice in your personal relationships, you know, the people closest to you, maybe the positive or the challenging or both? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. So the first thing that I noticed was that I became more attuned um, to people's agendas. 
And it felt as though I suddenly could understand, oh, this relationship is kind of based on this thing. And that's not something that's actually serving me. And this is not a relationship that's actually serving me. So I have to let this relationship go. And I think that within the first uh, maybe year or so of practicing yoga, there were a lot of relationships that I first like, you know, went to the person and said, I don't think we can be friends anymore. And then I was like, oh, that's a lot of work. (laughs) I have to explain why. So I'm just going to allow whatever relationships are not meant to be to dissolve and let go. And then I started to notice that once I started to do that, and I didn't know this at the time, but basically what I was doing is I was creating space for those who were resonant with me and my vibration and my new understanding and evolution to come into my life. And that was what happened. All of a sudden, I, I started to have new friends who we could talk about things that were you know, on my mind or on my heart. And it really changed the depth of the type of relationships and friendships that I had much different than the kinds of relationships that I had had previous to that. Yeah, I don't know if this has been your experience, but and this is something I was reflecting on just yesterday, actually. The, the people in my life that I either am no longer in contact with, who I loved very much at the time and, and still love who they are, it's interesting to me how they show up in a new form. Mm-hmm. So it... You know, a friend in my life now will have several aspects of personality that remind me of the aspects of personality I so enjoyed from someone when I was 29 that I don't see anymore, but they also come with a few more compatible aspects. And, you know, my guides who I channel, they always say that for us to have a a good relationship with someone, we need at least eight compatibility points in the relationship. Mm. That, 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 that it can go more than eight, but when there, is, when there are eight compatibility areas in a relationship, it can be a richer uh, container of sharing. And, and I've, I've really noticed that because in my earlier years, not unlike you, I used to resist and find very painful the, the changing relationships uh, that I had got myself attached to, but you know, at a certain point would have to either change, move on from, or they would move on from me. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to know more about those eight qualities. <laughs> well, it, you know, it really only, I, and I, I'm, I'm repeating something from a channel that, that came in our Soul Magic Retreat about a year and a half ago, but as soon as I heard it, it made sense to me. So for example, it could be areas where your values match, or it could be areas where your personality points are compatible. So you know how in a, often in an intimate relationship, there is usually some unity between the two people, but there are also enough differences that between the two of you, your companionship can make your shared energy field a little richer because one of you is a bit more interested in taking care of this on the left and the other one is a bit more interested in taking care of that on the right. And I don't think it's just about jobs we might do in those partnerships, because it has to be more than that. But it, it was an interesting framing for me to help me look back at how relationships had had to, some of them had had to disappear, because I loved those three things that we had together, but no longer could I deny the fact that certain things were missing for me to be pouring that much of my emotional and intimacy energy into them. So that's, that's my um, retelling of that message. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I I think that um, the practices of yoga that ask us to inquire within ourselves also can bring us to that awareness, even not that like specific, but like, whoa, wait a second. This is a one-sided relationship. I'm giving so much of myself and not receiving anything. Um, I certainly had that awareness with many relationships. Well, I loved what you said too about how your intuition suddenly made you more aware of the agendas. And something you also said pinged for me as a a learning that I still go through, but a key learning for me was just because you can do something or just because someone else might want you to do something, 
does your body actually want to do that? Or are you just, in my case, was I just responding to their want or need and taking some kind of pleasure over fulfilling that need for them without really checking in? Is this enhancing me? Which I think many people who identify as empaths, healers, sensitives, that can be a core uh, learning, I think, for many of us. Yeah, I mean, that that is the one of the core teachings of, of the Bhagavad Gita, which is basically it is better to do your dharma imperfectly than someone else's dharma perfectly. I love that. Love that. So Yoga Nidra, one of the things I loved when I opened your beautiful book, Radiant Rest, yeah. is I did not know the definition of Yoga Nidra. And the fact that it relates, it, it translates to bring sleep in, which was fascinating to me. So could you, could you share a little about that for us? Yeah. So yoga nidra translates to the yoga of sleep. And so we also think about it as the sleep of the yogis. And this idea that the yogis sleep is that they are aware that the wakeful time, the daytime is the time of ignorance and misperception. And that the time of the wise or the time of the sages is actually the time that we, most of us just consider to be a time of sleep where we're just completely unconscious. So yoga nidra, the, the etymology of the word is the knee and that is referring to the void. And the drew refers to this idea of something being revealed or drawing from the void. And so if we think about this place of sleep, we can think about how many different transitions there are within our sleep, whether it's the stages of sleep, whether it's the stages of uh, consciousness, whether it's even the brainwave states, one of those brainwave states becoming higher than the other. And in that transition, there's a void. And usually we kind of black out during that void, right? We lose awareness, we lose consciousness. And yoga nidra is a form of a systematic relaxation that guides you through the stages of consciousness, the brainwave states, and also the koshas. So the, the mental body, the physical body, the energetic body, the wisdom body. But it asks that part of our awareness, which is a part of us that is always awake, that we bring our awareness to that. And then once we do, we can kind of release all of our identification with our mind, with our body. We can let our physical body fall asleep. We can let our mind fall asleep. And when we do that, our consciousness stays awake and aware and becomes aware of prana, which is life force. And then we can kind of allow ourselves to be guided by prana all the way back to source. So it is really a practice that we can talk about sleep, but it's sleep with a slight trace of awareness. Mm. And you've been studying this now and, and practicing this for 25 years? 20 years. So I was, I was introduced to uh, the practice of deep relaxation and yoga nidra in 2001 and had a pretty profound experience that threads back to that time on the balcony in South Africa, where I felt this deep peace, stillness, bliss as who I was. And so, of course, I was going to try to find out as much as I could about this practice. There was not a lot available at the time um, about Yoga Nidra. Uh, there were maybe one or two books that you could buy and a few audio practices that you could do. But what I realized when I started to share the practice in my yoga classes, as well as practicing it myself, and thankfully I was also teaching yoga while I was producing movies, that I got to see this is really something that is changing people. Without the kind of effort that is needed to practice yoga asana and mm -hmm. postures, because it's done in a supine position. It's done in the position of Shavasana, uh, which is corpse pose. It makes it so much more accessible to everybody, even if you've never heard the word yoga. 
That's interesting because yoga nidra is one I've never tried, and now you've got me super intrigued. So thank you. <laughs> you know, I have, to go and, have to go and try it. And I'm guessing you also do you te- you're teaching online these days. I'm guessing. Yeah, I am. So I train teachers along with my co-teacher and friend, Chanti Takarante Perez, and we teach uh, teachers how to teach and hold space for Yoga Nidra. Mm. And I'm curious, you said you were teaching while you were producing movies. I know that with that job, you were not on set all of the time, but I know that movie sets, the, the hours are super long especially for a producer, you're normally the first there and the last to leave. So were you teaching on your one day off at the weekend? How, how did that show up when you were on a three or four month film shoot? That's such a great question. So first of all, it's a fallacy that most uh, producers actually stay, are there when that call and ending when they're wrapping. (laughs) Okay. That's very different to the stories I've been told by some, some producers I know. Yeah, so the the real producers are the ones who, you know, like the line producers and people who are really invested in their job as producers, they will be there from morning until night. Mm. Um, And for me, it's not, it wasn't like a constant filming, right? We would have shoots for two months or three months and then I would come home or you know, maybe I would be lucky enough that we were doing uh, film shoots in LA, but that was very rare at the time. So my classes would be on the weekends and then I would have classes in the morning at 6 a.m. So when I was working in the office in between shooting, I would teach at 6 a.m. And luckily my office was right down the street. So I could just go right to work at, you know, eight o'clock and nine o'clock. Um, and then I would get subs or people to substitute my classes if I were if I was out. And did you have any hesitation about becoming a teacher of yoga? So do you remember like your first classes or did you take to it like a duck to water? Mm. So, you know, what happened was is that I actually opened a studio before I was a teacher. Um, I was producing and I felt like this practice had changed me so much that I wanted it to be accessible to everyone. Mm. Um, And so I had access to this little space that was, I don't know, less than a thousand square feet. And I basically said, okay, I want to open up this studio on donation. And I had a partner who was a boyfriend at, at the time and we opened up this donation-only studio. So whether you could afford $15 for the class or you could afford nothing and you wanted to just bring me some apples, that's how it would happen. And we and I basically hired all of the teachers and friends that I had that were becoming yoga teachers. So it was very new yoga teachers that were teaching in the space. And there was a weekend where I was at home and somebody called in sick. My apartment was where I was living, was above the studio. And I had to go down and teach. And I thought, oh, this, I had not expected this. I was not expecting to teach. I was expecting to like, just be able to take classes whenever I felt like it and practice in the studio. So maybe I should do a teacher training just in case this ever happens again, because it's irresponsible for me to go down and teach, not actually being a teacher. So I did a teacher training and within the third day of doing this teacher training, the practices that we were being given, which were tantric practices um, from the Himalayan tradition of Sri Vidya, were so powerful and so transformative that first of all, my mind was blown. And secondly, I was like, oh, wait a second. I actually have a responsibility to share these. Like I can't just hold these practices to myself and not do anything with them. I have to share them. And I can teach one day a week. And that one day a week turned into two days on the weekend. And then it turned into three days during the week at six o'clock in the morning. Because what I was feeling was that the sharing that I was doing of yoga and what I was seeing within the community of people who were practicing was so transformative that it was much more rewarding and necessary than making another Steven Seagal action movie. Mm -hmm. Although they are very necessary, Tracy. 
<laughs> I haven't actually seen any of them, but I don't, if there don't are do any it, don't do it. Go, hey, they can always rewatch them. Um, yeah, I. It's interesting. There are two things you just said that that link for me. Number one, I love that rather than your story being, I just loved teaching yoga. You're like, well, it would be irresponsible of of me if I ever did this again and had to do this again to not go and train. So I love that it was actually your sense of responsibility that drove you into the door of the teacher training. And then it was your sense of, again, responsibility to transmit this to people. I also love that you were in a position to be able to offer the donation basis and somewhat fund this community effort through you know, your other work. I always think that's the beauty of being able to generate what you might need, whether it's money or whether it's resources on the left that can then feed something on the right. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. But how long did it take you to go full-time? Mm. Well, it, it, let's see, how long did it take me? Let me think about or that. I should say, how long did it take you to finally leave the movie business and go, I'm going to devote my, my life to serving this? Well, it... In 2004, so this was just a few years after opening the studio, um, I'll never forget this because I was, I was on a yoga retreat really deep in these teachings. And I got, this is back in the day when we had pagers or like a Blackberry oh, yeah. or something. And so I got this message on the Blackberry uh, from Steven Seagal. <laughs> it was, and it was like four in the morning. And I'm like, Really? Like I'm on vacation right now. And so I get to the pay phone and I make the phone call. I get the call through. And it's like some, like something that was just so ridiculous. And I thought, I'm done. So my first thing was, you know, I called up the owner of the company and I said, I'm done making movies with this person. I'm not, don't find another producer to do this. I'm not, this is not what I'm doing. And then I was like, I've got to find a way to start to transition out of this. And the way that I found was that I, I actually wound up moving to Mount Shasta um, and creating this life with the man that I was in a relationship with to teach yoga full time and to bring people from L.A., and from the surrounding areas to come in for kind of destination retreats and workshops and this and that. And my plan at that time was that, okay, I still love making movies, but I really want to make films that are meaningful and that touch people's hearts. And I don't want to work for a company that is just trying to get the numbers and have, you know, 30 movies a year or whatever it is. Um, And so I'll just make one movie every 18 months. And so that's what I did. And it was wonderful. Unfortunately, I was in a relationship, much like the one that you described, uh, where there's something missing. And the more that I would practice, and now I was out of the hubbub of LA, and I was really um, in nature and quietude, and all of the things that were not working in the relationship definitely came to the surface. It, they became, they were like enough that we couldn't look away from them. Um, I won't go into the long story, but we got divorced. And in the midst of that divorce, there were some wonderful things that happened as far as my awareness of who I was and what my power was. Um, but it also then led me back to LA because I was going to go bankrupt. <laughs> essentially, because it was 2008 when the crash happened. Um, And I thought, I said out loud to myself, I need to find something that's really in alignment. And the next day I got a call from a friend who said, you know what, I'm starting a spiritual film company and I would love for you to come and work with us. He knew that I was not living in LA anymore. And he said, but you have to do it from LA. You can't do it from there. So I wound up coming back into the business in a different way with a different kind of vision about the types of vibrations that I was going to be putting out into the world. Um, And then I stayed there until that vibration started to shift, right? Is that their their mission statement started to shift. Um, And then 
I left in 2011, I believe. Yeah, 2011, end of 2011, 2012, and said, that's it, I'm doing this full time. And I tried to create as many cushions for myself, you know, like financial cushions as to be able to make it a lot more easeful. Um, And so that was, I was lucky that I had the luxury to be able to do that. Um, And then of course, some of those things got dissolved and I had to jump full in (laughs) and here I am. So if we could um, time machine 2011 Tracy to today, how would she feel about how everything looks in your world and life right now? Not the world, because that's a whole other bag of potatoes, but just your, <laughs> your personal journey and evolution with how you are now expressing yourself and showing up in the world, both in your work and in your life. You know, I would say that it's very um, close to how I imagined it. You know, I imagined being uh, a published author. I imagined having my own community that was online, Um, not because of a pandemic, but because it would be Mm -hmm. virtual. Um, You know, I definitely imagined living somewhere where I was really in nature Um, being in a beautiful relationship with someone that I love and who loves me and who we both honor each other. Um, And I loved what you said earlier about how when two people come together, the energetic field kind of expands itself. That's definitely how I feel in my relationship with my husband. And so I don't know that this, any, you know, any of this feels surprising. It feels like it's been something that has been guided almost without me being in control, but me listening and then following where I'm being guided to. Yeah. And the book, so this was in your vision a decade ago. What led to the book happening and being published now. And I'm guessing you were working on the book in about 2019 based on how long it takes for publishing to happen these days. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Um, In about, I think it was 2001, a random man walked up to me, completely random, but I'll remember him because he had a strawberry stain on his face. And he walked up to me um, and he said, I'm a psychic. And I was like, Aren't, aren't we supposed to wait for me to ask you if I want a reading? And he came up and he said, I have three things to tell you. He said, one thing is your relationship is not going to work. You're not on the same vibration. Two is that your father, um, something is wrong with his head and he's going to need you to forgive him and you're going to need to put energy on his head. And then it turned out later that my dad had dementia. And that he said, the third thing is you're going to write a book. And I was like, what am I going to write a book about? But I always had that kind of thread in my mind. Um, and so I had started writing a memoir um, slash practice book slash, you could say, self-help spiritual book, really about my path and the practices that kind of led me to where I am now. Um, and while I was doing that, I got a call from Shambhala publishing and another publisher asking me if I was interested in writing a book about yoga nidra. And I had resistance because I'm like, no, I'm already working on this other book and this is what I'm doing. And then I started to think, well, is this my ego saying this or do I need to listen? You know, I like to listen And that weekend after I got the call from Shambhala, I was teaching and there were about, I don't know how many people came up and asked me, oh, so do you have a book? And I thought, well, this is weird because it's the first time anyone's ever asked me if I had a book. So I need to kind of answer this call. And that was really how it happened is that I sat down after that weekend and I thought about what is my relationship with this practice? of yoga nidra that I've had over 20 years? What is my understanding of it? And how can I help people cultivate 
the same relationship or their own relationship with the practice based on the tools that I have. And that was how I kind of put the book proposal together and talked to Shambhala about it and they loved it. And here we are. And that was in, uh, I think I delivered the book on February 28th of 2020 and I had five months to write it. Right. And what was the writing process like for you? Did it just flow or did you feel any pressure? You know, it's so funny. I I almost feel guilty because it was very effortless. No, that's great. We need to hear that because we've had several authors on who will share, oh, this was hard to write or I find writing hard even though I am an author. So Keep that coming, please, Tracy. We keep keep bringing that <laughs> yeah. message. It's good. But but you know why I think it was effortless in in the writing of it is because I was practicing yoga nidra mm. and I was allowing the the work to download. Mm. And I don't really feel like it was me that was writing the book. It was really me getting out of the way and asking the goddess, what is it that I need to translate here for this book to come through? And then I love researching. So the research part was like fun because I'm like, okay, now I get to like look at all these things that I would be doing anyway, right? Someone's paying me to do this anyway. And then what I would say is where it got hard is in the editing process, right? When the copy editing, because when you're in this intuitive flow of I'm downloading this information and I'm writing it and then you get, you know, the tedious little notes back, that was definitely more challenging because that's not my forte. Um, And so I was really happy to have editors at Shambhala um, to help with the process of the copy editing and just making suggestions about, you know, shifting chapters or asking questions because I was sometimes making assumptions that, oh yeah, everybody knows this, right? So that that was um, the, the hardest part of the process, which still was really seamless. It was really great. And how is it now it's out in the world? Because by the way, the book has such a magical and powerful energy. So I I can imagine I, it, it correlates with you saying it was a, a channeling experience of a kind for you. But how is it now that the book is out there in the hands, the hearts, the minds of people? Mm. Well, you know, on the on publishing day, I burned the book. Oh. I did a fire ceremony where I burned the book as a way to release the book from me even thinking that it's mine. Beautiful. And so it's a joy to see people with the book, people writing me that they're sharing practices from the book, that they're doing the practices from the book and, you know, reading me back the poetry that's in the book. It just feels like a joy because I feel like I released this as a prayer into the world And it is being received by people as a healing tool and as something that they can bring into their lives to bring more rest and clarity. Um, And so it's great. I feel like I'm getting to enjoy it without being attached to the outcome. It's kind of like it's out there and swaha. Nice. That's great. And I know that you also have your podcast, Radiant Rest, and you have some really wonderful themes and, and conversations that you're having with your guests there. The topics are, are really pertinent. How has stepping into the podcast world been for you? You know, it's funny. Um, I was very nervous about starting a podcast because the way that I work is very emergent and I have to be passionate about what I'm doing Otherwise, I'll just lose interest and want to move to something else. So, you know, I set it up to say, okay, I'm going to do 12 episodes of this podcast. And I'm only going to interview people that I'm really interested in interviewing because I know that some friends that I have, they have, you know, three interviews a week. And it, you know, I'm I, I'm not sure that you can really be excited about three interviews a week. 
uh, at least for me. And so stepping into that realm has been great because I love asking questions and I love learning. So when I choose guests that I really want to learn something from, because I am a forever student, it's like having a conversation. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it feels good. Beautiful, beautiful. And I want to ask you about uh, something that I noticed on your website when I was having a little look around yesterday. Um, you've taught a lot. So not only your classes, but you've led workshops, retreats uh, in, in many different places. But one thing that piqued my interest, in 2019, you were the teacher for Oprah and Gail's, I believe it's called Girls Getaway in the, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Right. So as I'm a man in my body is a man this lifetime. So sadly, I wouldn't have been allowed to go there, but I would have loved to because, um, you know, as I shared with you before we started, Oprah was a key uh, enlightenment teacher for me, especially around emotional intelligence, vulnerability and sharing at the age of 16 when I desperately needed advocates of that. And then I love Oprah and Gail's road trip that kind of happened about a decade ago. And I love seeing Gail out there more in this past five five years or so. I, I love the fact that she's more out there in the world. So what was it like to not only get to do something like that with them, but also to work with the people who love them and come for them and be a part of that whole thing? Yeah, it was the most incredible experience. Um, First of all, I think any time that you have a group of people, especially 2,500 women, and some of them brought their husbands. Oh, (laughs) I wish I'd known it was going on. Right? (laughs) When you get that many people with a singular focus Mm. arriving in a place that is basically a floating container, (laughs) it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And so the the common you know thing that everybody had in common was of course they want to see they want to meet Oprah right they understand the power and the vision that she has but the other thing that was maybe even more powerful is that everybody had kind of made this unconscious and and conscious intention to show up as their best self because that was part of the thing. That was part, like, we're all going to show up as our best self. So imagine having women from all walks of life, all races, all cultures arriving on this boat. And that was the first thing that I noticed. I was like, oh, this is interesting. There's like some people here who are, uh, you know, they've got the wraparound luxury suite with them and one other person. And then there are people from the deep South that are here sharing a room with eight people, right? Right. How is this going to, how is this going to work when there's so many different people here? Um, Especially, you know, in a, on a ship where uh, it's like class is definitely something that you notice, right? Um, Because people are separated by their rooms and by where their rooms are within a day. Every single person on that ship was mingling. They were crying together. They were laughing together. They were taking selfies together. It was absolutely incredible. And what I came away with is that this was a microcosm of what is possible in the world. This kind of love and sisterhood and seeing people for who they are at their essence as light and love and beauty, regardless of anything else. And that that was the most um, amazing thing that I observed. And I have to be honest that I, I really thought, oh, I'm sure Oprah doesn't notice this because she's kind of sequestered maybe in her room and maybe she's just coming down for the big talks when the audiences are down. But she spoke to it on day three. She said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And it was really one of the most inspiring things that I've ever seen, felt, um, or been a part of. Wow. I had many emotions listening to that. And one that hit me was kind of sadness about 
because it's funny, you know, like everybody, I think I've just adapted to the 2020 year that we had. And we also had several live events that we had to cancel. But as you were describing that, it took me back to the retreats that we held. The last big one was um, to end of 2019 in Costa Rica. But I've never been on that scale of, so the energy you described, I know very well, both from being a student in a retreat space and then from facilitating them and, and wanting to hold a space for that to happen with the team I bring with me. But hearing that at that many people, two and a half thousand people, that's profound. And what, what it makes me wonder is, you know, you're, you're here two years later holding that energy in you as it's like a crystal of activation that is still in your body that you can immediately recall and transmit through this conversation. So two and a half thousand people also had that experience. It makes me wish, I'm, it's hard to talk about this right now because of where we're at in the world, but I always had a vision that there would be more, more gatherings like that in the future years on a bigger scale. And I've certainly seen and experienced that in recent years, but I think it's why... For example, rock concerts, I always love the crowd when they're focused on a common uniting theme. I don't like crowds at all when there isn't that focus. Like I either like the really quiet beach or a, a group who are focused on one thing. I, I don't like the middle ground. So I just love hearing that. It sounds, it sounds incredible. And thank God you all got to do that in 2019 with what was about to happen with 2020. You know, it's, it's, um, it is so incredible to think that that may never happen again, especially with someone like Oprah, not in the, you know, in the near future, for sure. Getting on a cruise ship sounds like not something that I'd want to do. Um, and at the same time, what is, what I see happening is, this space is happening. This type of thing is happening. This energy is happening online. Mm -hmm. And the more that um, facilitators make their uh, offerings available and accessible for people in marginalized communities and let people know that they are welcome and also bring in other facilitators from uh, BIPOC communities and trans communities and LGBT communities, Though that that will draw and does draw people in to know that they're in a place where they're welcome. And I feel like that same energy is being duplicated in space, sacred spaces online where there are people coming from many different backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and cultures. And these diverse communities are blossoming. Yeah. I so agree. And that that has been an amazing thing to witness. There have been many gifts and that has been one of them for sure. I'm curious, you know, one of the things that Stephen and I talked about a lot, especially at the beginning of our relationship, we've been together uh, five years, six years this year. And Stephen is black and we talked a lot about the lack of diversity in this field. Mm -hmm. And of course, being with him has opened my eyes more to things that I wasn't previously sensitive to or, or as aware of as I am now. We live and love together. And so I've really loved seeing that, over the, especially over the last year or so. I think there is a, an enormous rise around inclusion, not just of, of race, but like you said, the socioeconomic side of it. And I love the internet because of how free it can be mm -hmm. and how you can fund free work. So how has that been for you kind of going through this last couple of years? What, it, what are you noticing perhaps in some of the people who previously weren't able to access this work or weren't accessing this work? I'm curious, have you noticed or heard any kind of key feedback from them or anything that seems to be happening in those communities who perhaps are just finding it for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, I've always tried to uh, offer scholarships and make things as accessible as possible, starting back in 2001 with having a donation-based studio. But location was always the issue. 
right? So if you can't get to Los Angeles, you're you're not going to be able to do it. No, even if it is, you know, going to be on scholarship or or funded some way. And so the internet, what I noticed immediately, because I was in, I was leaving Costa Rica um, in February, coming back to LA and kind of watching what was happening in Wuhan, China, and thinking to myself, this is going to make its way here. And I'm at this festival with 10,000 people. So maybe I should have a mask on. And when I got back to LA, um, Somehow, I don't know, intuitively, I was prepared to have a virtual space. So I had a virtual 21-day meditation class that I had already taught once and had been recorded. And when we got the the notice for the lockdown, there was just something that said, open a space for free so that people can be in community And people can have a practice that's going to last them for a couple of weeks while this is happening. And, you know, I thought, okay, there's going to be, you know, 100 people or something that will join and maybe 50 people, if I'm lucky, will will come and we'll have a nice community. A thousand people signed up for this. And what I realized when we all gathered together, the energy was so potent. And there were people that I had met in all different places around the world that had gathered in or friends of friends or people who I didn't even know, people from Instagram that I had never met. And so the accessibility of the internet um, and it, it, to me, it's changed. It's been a game changer because this last year, has allowed people to where, you know, space was a barrier, family and childcare and leaving home, all those things were a barrier, have been able to do teacher trainings Mm -hmm. and learn. And I'm including myself in that because there are teachers in North Carolina that I've wanted to study with for a couple of years. And suddenly now they're offering online and I was able to complete like three programs with Daniel Four, who's one of my favorite teachers that I never would have been able to meet because I was that just because of how his programs run and where when he does them. So we've been able to expand our learning. Yeah. And and our connection as well, because it's funny, Tracy, I know that you were in LA, but I I know you're now in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh Good choice, by the way. Thank and, you. Um, and I remember we used to, when we started this show, we were always in studio and we actually started taping our shows eight months ahead of when we actually got around to starting the launch. So I remember we had this shock moment of, oh, we can't, we can't film in studio anymore because it just won't work now. But there was this gift of, oh, great, we can... We can now, all those people on the list that we were hoping, hey, if you ever come through LA or, you know, we'd written to them, if ever you're teaching, suddenly it was like, okay, well, let's just, let's just do what everyone else is doing, which is go Zoom. So, um, you know, even this conversation with us today would not necessarily have been able to take place. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think talking about the internet as a whole is a massive topic. And there are mm-hmm. definitely, I do understand when people are, hard on the internet or um, questioning certain aspects of it. And I can have those conversations. Mm-hmm. But for me, as someone who has used and learned from the internet for the last kind of 20 years, really, but especially over this last decade or so, when I've both been learning from it and using it, but also working through it, it really is an incredible connection tool in that way. 100% imagine if this had happened 25 years ago, this pandemic, without the internet, without being able to FaceTime your family that you haven't seen for a year. So yes, I definitely can say there's definitely things about the internet that that need to be reformed. But uh, this has been a gift. If we use technology in a way that is for expanding consciousness, awareness, creating connection and community and the upliftment of people, 
and ourselves and, and working towards the liberation of all sentient beings, it's a gift. Yeah. It and, just depends on how we use it. It's so true. And I think for anyone who's a creator or a creative of any kind, I love the ability that you can just, you know, do an instructional video on YouTube about how to fix your dishwasher because you know how to do it and you can put it out there and someone probably like me is going to go, how do I fix my dishwasher and find the video? And it, you know, it's, it's, it's right there. I remember being super excited about the internet in the early 2000s when at that time I was walking towards music and being a singer songwriter. And it was like, oh, I don't need to wait for the record company who may or may not give me a deal or as some of my friends had experienced, could give me a really hard time and keep my work if they mm. don't want to release it. So there is something about being an empowered creator in these times that is completely unique in our history. Um, and I think that's amazing. So speaking of empowered, you have the empowered life circle. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Empowered Life Circle is a community, and I really love to create containers um, because I feel like when we're doing some of these deep transformational practices, we need containers of support. So Empowered Life Circle is really this container of support um, where we meet monthly for yoga nidra practices, live meditations, movement meditation um, just, you know, moon circles. And it's really just kind of, if I was going to say that I have a virtual studio, this is the virtual place. I, I bring in guests, um, to come and talk about dreams and, uh, herbal tonics and all the things that I use in my own life to create that ritual that is my life, um, and inspiration. And, um, it's a community of, of love and uh, expansion. Fantastic. Fantastic. So as we're really at the end of our conversation today, I'm curious to ask you, what are you either curious about or hopeful for or creating in the next 12 months? Mm. Well, I am hopeful to live in a world that is just for everyone. Mm. Um, I'm creating uh, a new book and possibly a film, so we'll see. And what was the last one? I, I lost the thread. C curious about, hopeful for, or creating? Oh, curious, that's what I lost. So curious about dreams, um, you know, there's a teacher by the name of Charlie Morley, who is a lucid dream teacher. And um, I did, a, I was lucky enough to do a couple of workshops with him over the beginning of the pandemic. Another example of, I would never have made it to London to go study with him. Um, and so right now I'm in the midst of a dream sadhana, a dream practice where I'm recording my dreams for 40 40 days. Um, and so I'm really, and I'm at the beginning of that. So I'm in this place of really kind of delving into my dreams right now. Beautiful. Beautiful. And can we know anything about the book and the movie or is that still under wraps? Um, well, the book is the original book that I had started with before I went on the path of Yoga Nidra. And so it's more of a memoir practice kind of self-empowerment um, journey. Um, and the movie is, you know, I've been inspired by what's happened with the indigenous people here and their reclaiming of the water rights in New Mexico. Yeah. And so I'm in the process of just getting information to um, see what's there. So it's in the very early stages of um, me considering doing something around that. Oh, that's great. And that just intuitively, I feel that will get a lot of support. Mm, that's definitely a story that needs to rise to the surface in an even bigger way than it has. So that's exciting. Thank you. Yeah, great. Well, Tracy, this has been even though we've been talking and conversing, this has been radiant rest for me <laughs> just mm, because so of your, your beautiful presence. So thank you so much for, 
for what you do in the world and for coming here to share with us about what you're doing. And I know many people will be checking out what you're doing uh, and also just hopefully inspired through this conversation for their own work in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And we will see you on the next episode of Impact the World. And as ever, we will put all links to Tracy's work and her website in the show notes. But Tracy, the best website for people to go to is tracyyoga.com or tracystanley.com. Um, you can go to actually radiantrest.com. Radiantrest.com. Okay. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. So thank you everyone and see you next time on Impact the World. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Impact the World. And if you want to go deeper and more in depth with my work, you should check out my members group, The Portal. You can find it at my website, leeharrisenergy.com or visit theportal.world. <music>